0: Chapter 14, Shooting, Day 9.
1: And you have never not one time come to Salem at Halloween.
0: For such a narrow shooting window, we had absurd luck with the weather, most of that luck going to waste as we shot indoors. The final day called for two scenes, the road race at Fort Tabor in the morning and Canopy Lake Park in the afternoon. Any denizen of New England knows Canopy as a staple of the Northeastern experience, and when brainstorming interesting locations for scenes to take place, Jeff became stuck on Canopy, and the rest of us liked it. I was able to book the shoot with their very nice PR people, who planned to give us comp tickets and let us shoot while the park was open. Jeff remembered a rare and classic Kiss pinball machine being at Canopy and wrote some dialogue about it into the script, but we found out it had been removed. That dialogue turned into Space Invaders talk. It was a bit of a moving target, but we had it locked down. The road race would have JR and Keith selling our fake Adala bars, complete with tent, banner, and t-shirts. The script had a few customers exchange words with Mark, and we meant to cast either Aaron, Mike Morris, or Jake Sadik, Keith's brother, but all bailed. So the customers would be Nina and Aaron's uncle, Steve Trenholm. Hannah was the only one to stay behind, as she wasn't required in the scene. The last I saw before leaving the house was her draped in a blanket, barely awake, eating cold chicken wings for breakfast, and letting the dogs lick her fingers. Like a sticky little kid, she gave me a big hug before I stepped out. Shoots like these are tricky, because you schedule them for the background action, But you don't always have the background action you want. You have to wait and roll the take when the background is perfect. So a lot of this was spent waiting, freaking out as the rain lightened up and then poured down. Kyle and I became a makeshift megazord as I put my arms through his pits and held an umbrella over him Anytime the camera was outside the tent. I made contact with the race officials, who didn't seem as nerved up about me and my raunchy film record, Keith, who delivered a stellar performance in Sexually Frank, suddenly became as amateur as can be, flubbing with reckless abandon and clapping repeatedly and unnecessarily. When Jr. had dialogue, Keith overacted and mimed in the background. It was all great. Steve Trenholm was surprisingly good, except he kept turning his hat backward and forward, not paying attention to which way it was. It was so inconsistent that the scene was nearly uneditable. I think he was flipping the hat out of some nervous tick. Other than those hilarities and annoyances, the shoot was straightforward and went as expected. My mom popped in to say hello, as she was actually running the 5K, which was surreal. I had been living in a filmmaking vortex for nine days. I nearly forgot that real people did real things. One more shoot. That was it. Just one more shoot, and it was at a theme park. There it would end in glorious, youthful, theme-ridden celebration. But then Canopy called me. They had closed the park due to weather. Sorry. Want to do it next week? When John Ryan was in California again? Unlike when Amy didn't show up, or when the bowling guy stuck it to us, or we had to shoot unsolicited in a supermarket, I was numb. I was undeterred. We were shooting this today. I didn't care where. The scenes only required Hannah and JR anyway, and it's not like the plot hinged on Canopy, just our nostalgic desires. In the car, Steve and Keith helped me brainstorm. What about one of those lame fun centers like we saw at the mall? What about mini golf? What about a cranberry bog? That was a weird idea I barely acknowledged. What about King Richard's Fair? King Richard's was a New England-based Renaissance fair that everyone knows, and in my mind, scratched the same itch that Canopy did. But when I called, they let me know that there was a fee and a release required for anyone using AV equipment, and commercial use was prohibited. Technically, making a narrative film like ours is commercial use, so the answer was no. I wish I know who suggested it, but someone said Salem. I believe it was John Ryan. Now that was an idea I loved. It was October 6th, and there was a Halloween bazaar throughout Salem's public streets. The whole town was a backlot. And while we might technically need permits to shoot in public like that, what's the likelihood that a town of costumes and commercialism would stop us? I didn't know how it would make sense story-wise, but I knew we could shoehorn our way into Salem. Once Jeff and I settled it, he committed to writing new pages to erase any Canopy Lake references and replace them with Salem references, specifically regarding Giles Corey, a man who was pressed to death for not confessing to being a witch. In the car, Hannah and JR knew they couldn't be as flubtastic as yesterday, so they received the new pages on their phones and ran lines the whole ride. As they did, we did some off-the-cuff rewriting, making Giles Corey's cry of, MORE WAIT! Something of a metaphor for Mark's life. Suddenly, the impromptu change of location felt written from the start. And aside from Jeff Torelli.
2: And here is why being a lean, mean, no-money machine can make you much more flexible in times of distress. Had this been a huge production, one in which we had decided on a hundred extras to be at Canopy instead of just relying on the people who were already going to be there, or one where the writer was in another state or unavailable, or one that didn't have a production crew of only a handful of people, we could have never pulled that switch off. I can't tell you what a cohesive unit I felt like we were as I emailed new pages to Frankie that I had written in about 20 minutes so the actors could learn them in the car, reading off their smartphones. We got thrown a bad punch, we rolled with it, and came back. Not to mention that pretty much all of the Salem stuff is true guerrilla style, something you can't get away with when you're on a regular-sized production.
0: We all met near a municipal parking garage, parking where we could during the crowded Halloween month of Salem, Massachusetts. We had the dialogue, but not the action now that we had changed location, so we would have to invent our action based on ideas we got from the space. So before shooting, unloading, or doing anything, we walked around for an hour. With all the Giles-Corey talk, we thought for sure we would want to shoot near his grave, but the graveyards quickly felt obvious and didn't look particularly interesting. We instead decided that Hana's character should get her face painted, something spooky and Halloweeny, so that when she ends up in an argument with Mark, she's stuck in this stupid, inappropriate face paint not so dissimilar from Dan's Dracula costume in Sexually Frank. The argument would take place over by some food stands behind the Wax Museum. The drizzle was picking up, and the Doppler radar anticipated more. Nina became the new umbrella for Kyle as we shot the opening setup, which is my favorite in the film, a long lens shot of Mark and Carrie walking through the fog machine from the Wax Museum, like some kind of mock action film. It was hard to time and coordinate, given that we were shooting directly in public, and people also noticed the camera and tried to get out of our way in the middle of a take but after five takes, we nailed it. The wireless headphones were once again invaluable, as I could actually hear the performances, and John could monitor and record from under a tent, comfortably sitting down. We went to the face-painting tent and waited to get Hana drawn up. I picked a face somewhat arbitrarily. Some sort of skeleton, white face-paint thing. Hana kept coming up with practical story reasons for why that was wrong, and I couldn't understand what her issue was, but she finally just said it. Can I not get my whole face painted? I don't want to break out. While I would normally try to convince the person that a little bit of acne this week would soon be a long-forgotten memory, while the film will outlast us all, I didn't have my heart set on anything, so I appreciated her honesty and asked her to pick an alternative. She decided on a Joker-style stitched smile and a bullet to the head. The face paint artist was clearly a pro, and revealed himself to be a horror filmmaker and special effects guy. He showed us, but didn't give us, a DVD. Okay, so how much to give her the smile and the bullet? I don't know, what's the budget? This kind of threw me. I didn't know if he was trying to maximize what he could charge or give us a break as a fellow filmmaker. Well, what do you charge to do this if people aren't making films? I don't know. 20 bucks? Fine. As we ran through the dialogue in the ever-present drizzle, we retook Hana's angles a lot to capture various stages of the makeup. The artist kept asking for things to do, when all I wanted was for him to paint her face. I finally tossed him a line that I could easily cut just to get around it. You'd be
2: surprised how sated some people can be with just the possibility of being in a movie, no matter how low-level it is. Frankie knows this power and basically got someone to shut up and play nicely by letting them say something on camera he knew was never going to be in the final edit. Something to keep in mind.
0: When done, we headed to the Wax Museum lot, the location of Mark and Carrie's argument, and our final shooting spot. John Ryan was meant to have a hot dog, which was 6 or $7 at one of the stands, and Hannah in turn insisted on having a corn dog. We had to buy two of each, as the food slowly vanished across the takes. JR deserves credit for being an excellent eating mime. In many ways, JR is a technical actor. He understands continuity editing, pickups, close-up performing, wide-angle performing, and prop management. He deserves just as much thanks in keeping our production smooth running and low budget, because he wastes such little time. JR and Hana were 180 degrees from where they were the previous day. Their performances were the best in the film yet, really making me feel something behind the camera. I don't know if the scene just naturally called for that, or if it was a this-is-our-last-chance kind of thing or what, but it's a colorful, funny, depressing scene that lends some gravity to our otherwise small and subtle film. Visually, Salem served us wonderfully. And aside from John Hunt. Having been initially shaky on the script, and
1: even after all the revisions, and even after seeing eight days of shooting, I still wasn't sure I was going to love this movie like I loved our other films. I knew I was going to like it. The many improvements Frankie and Jeff made resolved all of my concerns, but I wasn't sure that there was much passion in it. That day in Salem won me over. Not only was it an amazing feat of filmmaking to change a major location on the fly, rewrite it, and then have it possibly be better than it was originally, but the performances that John and Hannah delivered in the more wait scene drove it home for me. Seeing some passion from John, Ryan, and Hannah helped to solidify the last few reservations I had about a Mark that wasn't passionate about anything. This scene mattered to Mark, and it came across beautifully on the screen. One thing that Frankie kind of glazed over was an element of the film that I loved, the opening sequence. Before shooting began, Frankie had played for me Robots Do Not Rock. Life
2: was good
0: And
1: I felt cool And I had complimented it as a perfectly nice song, but nothing that stood out. Seeing that opening sequence, with music, simple titles, and the photos of everyone's past, the characters' dreams when they were still young, when they were still fresh and not tainted by time in the real world, further set the tone of the film for me. It put the very last of any of my concerns with the film to bed. I was fully in love with it.
0: As we rolled our last take, our frustrations and stress evaporated, and the atmosphere turned into a sort of high school graduation, as we all took pictures together and applauded ourselves, inspiring blind public applause from passing tourists. From the coffee shop to now, we survived a series of unrealistic circumstances to achieve something that millions of people are constantly excusing themselves from achieving. In a sea of Kickstarters and unshot PDFs, we put up instead of shut up, and for some of us, for the fourth time. All central cast and crew, except for Maria, were present at the post-shoot meal we had in Salem. J.R. was able to bite into some New England tastiness for the first time since he flew in, ordering fish and chips and chowder. The rest of the evening was filled with earnest sentiments about the positivity of the experience, for which I was thankful and glad. It was soured, briefly, as I drove Kyle and Hannah home. Kyle asked me a question. At least tell me I wasn't as bad as John Hunt. I didn't answer him right away, which thrust us into another quiet conflict. I also made a comment to Hana that sparked an uncomfortable discussion. Hana, I know you've expressed some reservations about the quality of the film, but are you glad to have been part of it now? She read this as a form of inappropriate self-consciousness on my part. Self-conscious, I can't disagree with, but inappropriate? I tried to tell her that it's important to me that I satisfy anyone i convince to work with creatively. I don't want her watching it and going, wow, that was a waste of time. Now that we were at the end of the shoot, I was checking in again. But she was forceful about how I was projecting negativity on her, which she found unfair. Kyle contributed to her side, and, as is common, I didn't even know what we were arguing about after a while. I left for home, slightly soured on the pair, but far more grateful for the time, talent, and energy they gave me. As I rode back to Westport alone in my car, I reflected on how beautiful and ridiculous all these experiences have been, not just on this film, but all four. I recorded a grateful testimonial on my iPhone, which is now viewable at the end of one of the video blogs. I went home to Nina and John Ryan, where we recorded an hour-and-a-half-long podcast filled with gratitude and love, the opposite of the Jerry Springer cast from just a few nights prior.